Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show is pre-recorded on September 15th, so we are not taking any listener calls today. We are interested in your comments, so you can contact, contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is the seventh program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about the two-party system and the future of our democracy. We'll talk about the history and the future of the two major parties, how parties change and evolve over time, why they splinter, are parties too strong or too weak, and are the two major parties in this moment so polarized that the system itself is undermined? Has the modern two-party system made us ungovernable? Reforms and options might be realistic, multi-member districts, proportional representation, ranked choice voting, to name just a few ideas. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Lee Drutman is Senior Fellow at New America. He's the author of the new book, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. He's a winner of the 2016 American Political Science Association's Robert A. Dahl Award, a very prestigious award given for scholarship of the highest quality on the subject of democracy. He's also the co-host of the podcast Politics in Question, writes for the New York Times, Vox, and 538, among other outlets. We're very pleased to have you with us today, Lee. Thanks for coming on. Glad to be with you. And then Sandy Mizell, uh, Maine celebrity and longtime favorite. He's been on our show before. Sandy is the Goldfarb Family Distinguished Professor Emeritus of American Government at Colby College. He was director of the Colby and Washington program from 1987 to 1995 and director of the Goldfarb Center for Public Affairs and Civic Engagement from 2003 to 2012. He is himself the author of numerous books, including Parties and Elections in America, The Electoral Process, which with Mark Brewer is now in its ninth edition. Welcome, Sandy. So pleased to have you here too. Thank you for having me. Right now, it seems as though the two major parties are locked in an existential battle for future power, each side believing that if they lose in this moment, they're going to be locked out of majority status for the next generation. Everything seems to be at stake. Republican-controlled states are altering voting laws to make it harder, if not impossible, for Democrats to win. In Congress, the Democratic majority is trying to stop them pulling out all the stops to try to pass election reform of their own. Can democracy survive? Lee, I want to put it to you first and ask you to explain what you mean in your book by the two-party doom loop. Um, why did you pick that title and what are you talking about? Well, my publisher picked that title because <laughs> it was memorable. Uh, and but so basically a, a doom loop is a a colloquial term for a reinforcing feedback loop, like a microphone in front of a speaker that uh, amplifies and amplifies until it becomes a deafening speaker destroying sound. And what it describes is a in the, in our political context is a process of escalation around 
hyper-partisanship, around hatred, demonization of the other side, and increasingly, as we're seeing uh, around the fundamental rules of democracy, uh, as Republicans uh, you know, see a threat of, of Democrats expanding mail-in ballots, uh, they then push back with uh, restrictive voting rules. Democrats are now uh, potentially uh, going to have a major voting rights act, which if, if it passes, then Republicans, I think, would see themselves as pushing further back against it. And it's doomy because it uh, could potentially spell the destruction of American democracy as we know it, because democracy is really a, a fragile compact that depends on the legitimacy of elections and a sense of shared fairness around that process. And if we have uh, a system of elections where the losing side doesn't think the elections are fair, the alternatives are uh, violence. And if we have a election system where the winning side feels that the losing side is going to, to try to cheat, then that, that becomes, uh, uh, you know, they will make changes uh, that push us towards authoritarianism. Uh, and, it, and it's loopy because it's just really crazy what's happening. I mean, it is, it does feel in this moment like each side sees the other, not merely as an adversary, but as a mortal enemy. Like if the other side wins, it's the end of our future as a party. And not only that, it may be the end of our future in America. Sandy, I mean, it is kind of a precipitous moment, I guess. It's a frightening moment. And, and I don't disagree with, with Lee on, on his uh, concern. Um, I do disagree, I guess, whether we are in a, necessarily in a doomsday cycle. Um, the polling shows that, that both political parties have viewed the other party more negatively than they view their own party more positively for almost a decade now. Um, and that's a bad sign, but it's a sign that also has gone on for almost a decade without uh, the country collapsing. I don't think, in fact, we are in worse shape than the country was in the 1880s, as an example, uh, when there was a huge div divide between urban and rural America, probably not in worse shape than we were in the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s, when there was a huge depression. Um, I think we are lacking leadership. I think we are lacking a commitment to the basic fairness of democracy that, that Lee has, has talked about. And I think he's right to talk about that. I think the point that is an existential threat is not so much the two-party system, but rather leaders not accepting the results of elections. That goes back to the uh, election of 1800 um, when the most important, probably the most important election in American history when, and the most important thing that happened in that election was the losing side conceded to the winning side. And we've done that in every election since. Former President Trump didn't do that. And he not only didn't do that, but he's encouraged others to think uh, that's what is, what is uh, the malady in our system. And I think it's critically important that that is, is righted, and I think it will be. But I mean, doesn't our system require some kind of bipartisanship to function? I mean, since I, I'm making this up, but since like Newt Gingrich, when the um, the goal of Republicans in a Democratic presidency has been to stop anything from happening so that the Democratic president couldn't take any credit. I mean, doesn't traditionally uh, we've uh, done important policy making uh, with large bipartisan majorities. Now, 
I think it's certainly possible, and we, we may see Democrats weaken the filibuster. Um, I, I'm not sure how much longer we will have the, the, the filibuster if Democrats don't get rid of it. Uh, this time around, I'm sure the next time we have a unified majority government, that that party will get rid of it, uh, and that will allow you now majorities to, to do more. Uh, I, I do want to respond uh, to, to Sandy's point about uh, you know, whether we will be able to right ourselves and in, in the important role of leadership, uh, because I mean, he's absolutely right that there has been an incredible dereliction of leadership uh, in the Republican Party. The question is, how is a different kind of leadership going to emerge? I mean, you know, we see that Trump is still really the, the hero of the Republican Party. Uh, and you know, it, he uh, disputed the election, uh, but so many other people in the Republican Party have gone along with that. And even now, as we watch candidates position themselves uh, to win Republican primaries ahead of the 2022 midterms, uh, it's really hard for Republican candidates who want to acknowledge the defeat to even have a, a chance at winning. So, you know, I, I agree political leadership is important, but I don't see how leadership on the political right uh, emerges that acknowledges the uh, potential of uh, that party can lose elections. And we just had this recall in California, which Gavin Newsom won. Uh, uh, but Larry Elder and, and Trump were you know, saying, well, it's going to be it's going to be a fraudulent election. Even on Larry Elder's website, there was a, a an NBC News reporter discovered a page saying that a statistical analysis had uncovered fraud uh, before the election was <laughs> votes were even counted, which is one heck of a statistical model. If you can discover fraud, I, I, I don't think I took that statistics class in graduate school. Uh, but me, that's, me, you know, it seems to be the, the standard playbook now, and I don't see how that changes. I think things have just been getting worse and worse over the last decade, and I, I don't see how the system writes itself. Let me let me yeah. give us a scenario that writes itself. Uh, Gavin, Newsom won, you know, Gavin Newsom won really, nearly two-thirds of the vote in that primary, um, and um, I think the way the system writes itself, the way the Republicans write themselves, and I think we agree that they're the, the primary difficulty here, although not the only one I would, I would argue, uh, is, is when they realize they're gonna lose elections. They lost the 2020 presidential election. I think many of the candidates that President Trump is backing um, in Senate races in 2022 are likely to lose because they are too far out of the mainstream. Uh, and eventually I think the establishment Republicans and moderate Republicans are gonna say, wait, Trump may be scary, but he's leading us down a road of losing. Um, and if it's going to lead us down a road of losing, we're not going to continue following it down that road. Um, and I do think you have a politician like President Biden, who, you know, let's let's remember he's only been in office since January. We're we're now talking about eight months, uh, but we did run as a moderate trying to make bipartisan agreements. I think he is stuck to that to this point. Uh, people like Bernie Sanders and AOC say, uh, to his detriment, I disagree. I think, in fact, he has a playbook that he's has to follow if he wants to change the system. And I think um, 
there are there are others in the system who are who are likely to come along with him if and, and this is this is where I totally agree with Lee. If in fact the um, Trumpian wing of the Republican Party loses its dominance over the Republican Party, but just think back, we, we're only talking uh, 2016 when they gained prominence in the Republican Party, and I think there's uh, ample opportunity. And I think when we talk about reforms, we can talk about some of those ample opportunities uh, I mean, to write the Republican this, chef. This isn't just about Trump, though. I mean, this is been going on. I mean, absolutely you know, not. In, Reagan, Gingrich. I mean, this has been going well, on for a long time. I, I guess I, and I disagree with you about President Reagan. I certainly agree with you about Speaker Gingrich, and that. And I'm surprised you didn't use uh, Leader McConnell as, as your primary example there, who before Barack Obama had been sworn in, said that his sole job as leader of the Republican Party was to make Barack Obama one-term president. Uh, but again, he lost on that. Um, Gingrich is not the speaker anymore. Lost on that when he confronted. Uh, the government over over basically trying to do what he said he was going to do. Yeah, that's true. But they um, they lost. But Lee, didn't they just then double down and get even more conservative? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, Gingrich. You know, I, I think we uh, what Gingrich did was he uh, really nationalized elections, uh, and he you know, and he also. Uh, kind of picked up on what was already something that was happening in the Republican Party, which was an increasing frustration with with Democrats that there had been a uh, uh, Democrats had been the, the majority in the House for uh, 40 years. And you know, there, there had been a period in which Democrats were willing to work with Republicans more. But as the Democratic Party itself became increasingly liberal and more power concentrated in the speakership, uh, Republicans in the House were growing more and more frustrated. And so they were willing to, to fight back much harder. Uh, and the other thing that uh, Gingrich did is, is he brought in a new generation of much more combative candidates who then went on to become senators. Uh, and so it's not, not just Gingrich himself, but it's the way he changed the composition of the Republican Party. And what you've seen over, it's now almost three decades since Gingrich took power, and you look at the transformation of candidates uh, both in both parties, but I think particularly the Republican Party, you look at the way that liberal Republicans have, uh, you know, disappeared. And so I think you know, Susan Collins is really the, the last uh, of a generation of New England Republicans who used to be much more moderate. They can't win office anymore. The Republican Party has been uh, much more dominated by a much more conservative rural wing. Democratic Party has become much more dominated by a, an urban liberal wing. And the overlap between the parties has uh, disappeared. The uh, elections are constantly up for grabs at a national level, even as most states become much more solidly uh, Democratic or much more solidly Republican. And as the parties have split in this urban uh, rural divide with increasing nationalization of politics, uh, the stakes of every election have come to really seem existential. And there, there's a lot of political science research that shows that people's support for democratic norms uh, is very weak when it goes up against uh, the possibility of their party losing.
Yeah, and let me just do a station break, then we'll pick that right up. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERUFM. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is the two-party system and the future of democracy. Our guests this afternoon are Lee Drutman, Senior Fellow at New America, and Sandy Mizell, Goldfarb Family Distinguished Professor Emeritus of American Government at Colby College. Um, talk a little bit from your perspective, Sandy, about the party sorting and how the overlap has, um, you know, gone away. No liberal um, re Republicans, no conservative Democrats, and where the overlap between the two has tanked. So, so this is the problem with radio because this is so easy to show visually. Right. Uh, but if you look 40 years ago at the Democrats and the Republicans and you drew a curve, and from the you know most conservative to the most liberal, the most liberal, the most conservative among all the Democrats and all the Republicans. 40 years ago, there was a huge number of people who were in the Democratic Party who were more conservative than the most liberal Republicans and vice versa. Uh, today, there's none. Um, that the most liberal Republican, probably Susan Collins, uh, is more conservative than the most conservative Democrat nationally and in, in national politics. That isn't necessarily true of the electorate. It isn't necessarily true in every state legislature, although it is true in, in a majority of the state legislatures. And it is a, a serious problem. Um, I think there are two battles that are being fought right now. One battle being fought is the battle in the Republican party that we've talked about, um, in which it's very clear that the most conservative, most combative, most pro-Trumpian uh, wing of the party is dominating. I, I am sanguine that's not going to continue forever, but we, we will see. In the Democratic Party, the battle is between the progressive Democrats, symbolized by Senator Sanders or AOC or the, or, uh, the, the group of, of Democratic Congresswomen who, who are uh, aligned with her, and a group of moderate Democrats. I don't think, I'm not sure it's at all clear who's winning that battle. In fact, Joe Biden won that battle in the 2020 presidential primaries as a moderate. Um, and the, the, uh, the Sanders win lost. Uh, and I think, frankly, by arguing for policies instead of dominating a party, I think Senator Sanders has realized that. And Senator Sanders is, is a transitional figure in this. He's 80 years old today, as is uh, President Biden, who's 78. Um, so I think that's a real battle. And, the, the optimistic part of me, and I'm only optimistic partly because I think there's nothing you can do in reforms in a large way matter to change this. We can talk about that later. But the optimistic part of me says that in fact, if the moderate Democrats win that battle, that's going to force the, the Republicans back towards the center and have more of this overlap, which in fact is what's always happened in American politics. The, the uh, extremes have, set themselves out there, Barry Goldwater, George, uh, George McGovern, they have lost and the parties have come back towards, towards the center. And that's just not, that's, you know, in, in the period since 1964, but you can go back to the 19th century and see the same exact thing with, with the sole exception, of course, of the Civil War. But one thing that seems a little different to me right now, and I know gerrymandering is as old as time, and I know election suppression is as old as lax voting or however long it has been. But what seems structurally happening right now is that Republicans feeling like they can't win without changing the rules are changing the rules structurally to um, sustain minority rule 
in perpetuity. And that seems kind of threatening to me. Lee, can you, am I right about that? Or can you comment on that? Yeah, I, I do think that we are in a, a qualitatively different period in American political history. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, we might look at, at the, uh, you know, 64 election or 72 election or any, and, or any election in which, you know, uh, one party, you know, nominated a more liberal or more conservative candidate, but that was a period in which uh, a partisan uh, voting was less consistent, parties were changing, and politics was just a lot less nationalized, so there was a lot, uh, you know, a, a lot more flexibility for the, the parties were these broad coalitions of state and local parties. So, you know, Democrats lose a couple of elections because they nominate two liberal candidates. Guess what? There's a conservative wing of the Democratic Party that comes back and nominates Bill Clinton. Democrats move back to the center. Uh, you know, the, the thing about the Republican Party is that all those moderates are, are gone from the Republican Party. There's no more moderate governing wing of the Republican Party. Uh, and so for parties, parties are not these, you know, parties are coalitions. And for a party to change uh, somebody, uh, there has to be a faction within that party that uh, wants to change. And, you know, the, the reality of our political system right now, and to get to your point, Anne, about, uh, you know, Republicans locking in minority rule, is that it would take a lot of elections for the Republican Party to uh, decide that it can no, no longer has a chance at national power, just because they start off with such a strong advantage, given the institutional biases of our political system. Uh, and given the you know, radicalization of the Republican Party. I think it's uh, rather than the Republican Party moderating if they lose a couple of elections, I, I, I would be more worried that the party would would turn into a, 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 uh, uh, a, a militia. Uh, I mean, I, I look at the, the precedents here as, you know, I, I think we're much closer to the election of 1856 or 1860 than we are uh, to, to other periods in our time, uh, you know, I think, you know, uh, so, I mean, if you look at the history of democratic collapse, uh, not, not just in the U.S., but, but across uh, many democracies, you, you see a consistent pattern, which is that you see a total bifurcation of the party system uh, in which the stakes become incredibly high over, you know, formative rifts like national identity. And you see uh, one party of the sort of cosmopolitan cities, another party of the periphery. Uh, and the, that periphery party uh, is uh, tends towards authoritarianism. And if they get into power, they basically rewrite the rules to lock in power for themselves. And that, that is something that is, you know, set. this is what's happening now in, in Hungary and in Turkey. Uh, it's what happened in Venezuela. It's to some extent what happened in Nazi Germany, in Spain, so the Spanish Civil War that, that ushered in a, in a generation of, of authoritarian rule. So, I, I, you know, I, I, I am not sanguine. And I think uh, the, the unique moment in our politics, both the nationalization, as well as the transition to a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy, as well as the inequality, uh, particularly the, the geographic inequality between where, where wealth and, the, and jobs are growing and where they're shrinking. I mean, these are, these are all incredibly dangerous 
uh, crises to layer on top of each other uh, and on top of a binary political system. Sandy, why do you think that the parties are losing membership? I mean, the unenrolled population in Maine and I think across the country has been growing, right? People, even as the parties become more clearly defined, people join them less often or unjoin them more often. What, what's going on there? Well, it, it, it varies by state and what's going on varies by state and it also varies by state rule what that means. If you look at um, party identification, if you include the leaners in the party identification question, the change hasn't been very, very, very dramatic. I think frankly, people are fed up with the parties. And I think Lee and I probably agree about this. Um, you know, who would want your kid to grow up to be a party politician? Nobody. Um, it is it is a distasteful profession for people to go on. When I, you know, was a, a much younger person, all I wanted to do my whole life was be a member of Congress. I thought it was the coolest thing in the whole world. You couldn't give me a seat in Congress right now. Um, and you know, and I was at one point a county chair. You would there's nothing you could do to make me be a county chair right now. I just think that is has gone uh, the 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 current environment, the polarization of the current environment has made participating participating in politics much less appealing. On the other hand, I think that's also where the Pollyanna side of me comes in, which is to say, that I don't agree that there are no Republicans who are not Trumps, I, Trumpites. Um, I simply think they're not involved in the Republican Party right now. And at some point, you know, I any, any of us who have lots of Republican friends who are not who did not vote for President Trump know they're, they're these people who are saying, I'm not going to be part of the political party. Well, I think eventually they may become part of the political party again. I don't think that the generation of uh, George H.W. Bush or even George W. Bush and Jeb Bush is going to say, OK, we're done with politics now because we have lost. I just don't think that's going to happen. Well, I mean, Liz Cheney is no moderate, right? And she's having trouble kind of holding on, right? Right, but she also is not you know, jumping out of out of the party, she's trying to fight for the party, as was John Kasich, as is as were a number of other people, and I think they'll continue to do that. And again, you know, uh, well, first of all, Lee and I don't disagree as much as we, in some ways, we sound we sound like we do. I just uh, I don't believe that that you can say "woe is me" without having a solution that is practical, and I don't think that getting rid of the Republican Party is a practical solution. Well, we're going to get to we're going to get to solutions in the second half of the show, but okay. I, I'm not done complaining about the parties yet. So, okay. are the parties are the parties? Do you think too powerful or not powerful enough? I mean, our partisanship is very strong, but the parties institutionally. What about that, Lee? Uh, well, I mean, American parties are strange institutions because they are, you know. Who, who is the leader of the Democratic Party? Who is the leader of the Republican Party? Uh, in most advanced democracies, you know, parties have clear leaders and you know, they have control over their nominees. In, in the U.S. political system, because we have these you know, uh, primary elections and anybody can decide that they're a member of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party and become the, the candidate. There's all these networks of donors and activists um, who are fighting to define the party. I mean, remember, you know, I mean, Trump was barely a Republican. Uh, you know, the party tried to, you know, endorse others. Uh, but nor Sanders claimed, a Democrat. Nor right. Sanders a Democrat. Uh, so, you know, it's a it's a it's it's a very strange uh, thing to 
to wrap your head around. At the same time, because we have a, uh, a winner-take-all majoritarian system and the two parties have long-standing brands, everybody who's ambitious in politics goes to try to find their way in one of the two parties. And I mean, I guess Trump is the still the head of the Republican Party. I guess Biden is the head of the Democratic Party, but you know, but not really. Uh, so parties are both too weak in the sense that they, there's no real leadership, but at the same time, they're they're too strong in the sense that the identity and the branding is so central and overwhelming. Uh, that it makes it hard for anybody to uh, you know, find their way without being part of a, a kind of nationalized image of one of the two major and, parties. And can I pick up on that just a second? I think, I think you hit a really key point of whether the parties are too powerful or too weak. They are clearly too powerful in, in the sense that, that Lee talked about, also in the sense that they demand total fealty for their followers in in Congress, you know, you, you, uh, just this morning, um, uh, yesterday morning, I guess John Barrasso, the, the Republican senator from Wyoming, said every single Republican is going to vote for against the uh, the president's three point five trillion dollar package, and he says, I know that, and McConnell has said that as well, and the Democrats are fighting over one or two senators who might desert it, or or the the other way to put it is the Democrats might get that bill through the House, but they have a three vote majority, which says something about party loyalty. On the other hand. If the party wanted to get rid of a, of a person, uh, they have a great deal of difficulty doing it. I'm not convinced Liz Cheney won't win her primary. She may, she may not, depends how many people are in it running against her. Uh, but certainly the Republicans have not been capable, nor have the Democrats, of, of controlling nominations and of kicking people out if they don't like them. Uh, most of the very conservative Republicans didn't like Susan Collins. They couldn't even find anybody to run against her the last time. So um, I think there's still a great deal of, of weakness, as, as Lee said, in terms of controlling who the, the membership of that party is. And it also depends on how you define the party. I want um, to, I, I got a party. question on that. So hold that thought one second. Sure. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Lee Drutman, Senior Fellow at New America, and Sandy Mizell, Goldfarb family distinguished professor emeritus of American government at Colby College. Our topic this afternoon is the two-party system and the future of our democracy. This show was pre-recorded on September 15th, so we're not taking listener calls or questions. Um, you can send your comments, though, to news at weru.org. Please put democracy forum in the subject line. So I want to uh, circle back on that point, um, and I'll give you a chance to answer this, Lee. You know, we talked about how the party identity has is, are sort of bifurcated and how there's not as much overlap. But on the other hand, do party platforms generally match their governing strategy? For instance, I heard, I think actually it was the chair of Trump's election campaign who said on this radio show that Trump campaigned like a populist, but he governed like a big business conservative. And the Republicans famously kind of didn't have a platform in the last election. So do people really know what they stand for? Uh, I mean, right. The Republican, I mean, I think let's start from the fact that the Republican Party didn't even bother to have a platform in the last election. I mean, one of the things that, that struck me in watching both of the conventions was how there was 
basically no discussion of policy. I mean, you know, the, the, the closest I saw in watching the conventions was Elizabeth Warren's bit where it was all policy. But other than that, it was all personality. And, you know, frankly, a lot of it was just demonization, right? I mean, the, the uh, Republicans spent a lot of time talking about how dangerous it would be if the Democrats won. They said, you know, as Mike Pence said in his speech, the question is not whether a Democrat or a Republican wins, it's whether America remains America, uh, which is a, a policy-free statement. It's, it's a statement about who are we as a nation? What is our identity? Uh, a lot of the Democratic speeches were about either what a nice guy Joe Biden is or uh, that if Republicans win, it's going to be the end of democracy. Uh, so you know, voters aren't, you know, voters are partisans. They don't, most voters don't care that much about policy. Generations upon generations upon generations now of political science research that, you know, shows that people are partisans first and most people uh, let their ideology follow their partisanship as opposed to the other way around. To the extent that people decide what the most important issue is, it's because that's what the partisan leaders are talking about. So the conflicts are shaped by what the parties want to fight about. And precisely because the parties want to avoid internal disagreements, they try to avoid as much conversation about policy and try to focus on the unifying uh, force, which is the shared common enemy. Nothing unites like a common enemy. And in our two-party system, it's really easy to unite around a common enemy. So for all the weaknesses that parties have in kind of corralling a bunch of, of you know, disparate candidates into one framework, what they, they, they do have one incredible power. This is the power that McConnell has and Schumer has and Pelosi has is, you know, do you want to be in the minority? No. Well, you better vote with the team then. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Sandy, when was the last time that a new durable party, even if a small party, a new durable party actually emerged in American history? Like thinking what's going to happen to the Republicans now if the moderates are able to, you know, claw their way back? Um, well, it depends on how small you mean by small, but for for a durable, important party, the last time was 1856 in the Republican Party. Yeah. Uh, there have been a lot of small parties that had an effect for a few elections and, and disappeared. Um, and some that, you know, persist and may again have an effect. The Green Party is an example of that, had the effect of defeating Al Gore, uh, despite what they wanted to do um, in, in, the 90, uh, in the 2000 election. And I think there's a reason for that. I mean, I think it's a structural reason for that. Well, you can say another sense about what that structural reason is. Well, the structural reason is, and, and Lee referred to it before, is that we have um, an electoral system virtually everywhere in the country, which is a first-past-the-post plurality winner uh, in single-member districts. We have one major prize, which is the presidency that people are, are concentrating on. We have a number of organizations which have, a number of systematic organizations which have worked to benefit one party or the other, but those are probably the, the main two, it seems to me. You can list a whole bunch of others, but, you know, first past the post plurality winner in single member districts um, basically gives no ability for a third party candidate to, to win anything. So, so we have two independents in the Senate and none, I believe, today in the House. Um, something like 99% of all the state legislatures are either Democrats or Republicans but so, for that reason. And we have one big prize, which is the presidency. Right. Um, now, Lee, I, 
um, you know, read a little bit of your stuff. And I know that in your mind, at least the party, the problem is at least it's not about the parties. It's about there are only two parties. Like you're not anti-party. The problem that you see is that there are only two. Is that right? I love political parties. I'm a political scientist. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think I think political parties are incredibly important. They structure politics. They they provide a, a, a way to represent large unorganized masses. They structure conflict. But uh, the problem is when you have uh, just two of them trying to cover a large, diverse country with 330 million people. Uh, and you know that that the, it's really hard for the parties to uh, you know uh, offer all, all that much other than you know we're not the other side uh, and the other side is worse so vote for us and I would like to see stronger parties but I think the only way to have stronger parties is to have more of them because parties need to be able to say you know what we can we're not going to try to get you know, 51%. So we're willing to not, you know, be in a coalition with an, a long coalition with the Nazis. Now, the Republican Party basically can't do that. It needs the white supremacists to win. And, you know, this is the challenge of the center right is that they are, you know, a, main, uh, a minority within the Republican coalition. And in the two party system, if they are the minority within that coalition, you know, they have. They, they have basically nothing. I mean, the far right of the Republican Party is a, is a minority in this country, but they happen to be a, a majority of a plurality. And that puts them in position to potentially have total control over the country, uh, which is only a feature of a two-party uh, winner-take-all system. If you look at there's a there's an election happening now in in Germany and you know it's a lackluster boring election and what what I wouldn't give for a lackluster boring election <laughs> frankly uh, but you know the the AFD which is the far right party is has kind of topped out at about twelve percent you no know, wh whoever whatever party comes out you know on top in the in the German elections is not going to form a coalition you know there's a, there's a cordon sanitaire. Uh, th that party is never, unless they get to be a, a very large uh, share, which they, I don't see how they would, you know, they're always going to remain on the periphery and they're going to be fighting among themselves uh, over the smaller stakes of who controls the party, uh, rather than right now, Kevin McCarthy, I think, you know, if, if you gave him a true sermon, put him in a room and, and you say, what, what do you think about all those, those crazy, you know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene people say they're nuts. I, I don't want them in my party, but he wants to be majority leader. And so he's going to find his way to, to support them. And if he keeps supporting them over time, he convinces himself, especially when, you know, the it's the it's the anti anti Trump phenomenon eventually becomes pro Trump because there's nowhere else uh, for that to go. So, Sandy, from what you know about um, democracies and other countries, liberal democracies around the world. Is party affiliation stronger when people have more choices about which party to identify with? And um, is voter turnout higher when people have more choices? There are too many variables to answer that question quickly, <laughs> because clearly voter turnout is, is highest when you have compulsory voting. 
which is some of those, which is some of those systems. But I think it's higher than we are. I mean, we are fairly low in terms of voter turnout. There is loyalty to some of the parties, although that loyalty varies from time to time. Um, but it, I think it also varies with the success or failure of the parties and of the elections to do what they are intended to do. The Israeli elections, as an example, are showing what's happening when you have close coalitions that can't form a majority. And we have going into our fourth, have our, had our fourth election within two years because they can't form a governing majority in that, in that kind of way. So, you know, so this one question is, is a system like that better? I think that's an, uh, a normative question, which, which we can disagree on or, or agree on. I think it is um, the people in a system like ours make it seem a lot better than it is. And people in many of those systems would like to have a system where you can have a, a winner declared pretty easily. But there's the other question of, can you move from one to the other? Um, and yes, you can. I mean, we could change, not have a single member plurality districts, not have a single executive. And we could have a multi-party system. Um, we can't pass electoral reform. How does anybody think we're gonna pass that? Well, I'd like to just spend a minute and maybe let Lee explain multi-member districts with um, preference voting and why he thinks that might be a, a partial solution to this problem. So just give us the 101 version, Lee. Yeah, so I, I um, speaking to a, a main audience, so I assume you all are, are familiar with ranked choice voting and oh, yes. preference voting. Um, so uh, I don't have to explain that part, but you, you take that and then you have uh, multi-member districts. So for Maine is a small state with two congressional districts, but you can imagine a larger state uh, with five congressional districts, say, or Massachusetts with nine congressional districts, you know, you could, you know, have, have one statewide district or maybe, you know, three, three member districts. And this is a, this is a, a common system that most advanced democracies use. Uh, the combination of, of doing, doing multi-member districts with ranked choice voting um, is, you know, fewer democracies, Ireland is, and the Australian Senate are the most prominent examples of that. And, you know, what you have is instead of the top one finisher, the top three finishers in a three-member district to the top five finishers after preference transfers. So what you wind up is that parties don't need to get to 51%, they can get to, to 20%. And that means that you can have more diverse representation. So for example, Massachusetts, which has nine Democrats, although the state is not, say it has about 35% of people who I think would vote Republican. So really the delegation should be about six to three Democrat to Republican. But even within that, there are different flavors of Democrat and different flavors of Republican who might be represented. And, you know, in fact, you might see more liberal Republicans represented if you had proportional multi-member districts, because then certain the Charlie Baker and Phil Scott type Republicans could could get elected even if they weren't the majority within any single district. Similarly, you could have conservative Democrats uh, in other parts of the country that Democrats have basically written off uh, getting to Congress. And you'd see that diverse representation. I mean, I, I think that they might form different congressional parties. At the presidential level, you'd still have two major candidates because of the electoral college. Uh, but, you know, we could start to think about ways in, in which, you know, you could have something more like cabinet government. Uh, but, you know, that, and that's a, that's a simple legislative 
fixed. It's, in fact, there is a bill that has, I think, eight or nine co-sponsors, the Fair Representation Act, which would create multi-member districts with ranked choice voting uh, for, for the U.S. House. How would that uh, really work in small states? I mean, would it depend on actually expanding the size of Congress to give small states um, the same uh, chance? Yeah, so... Yeah, I mean, so there are a few, I mean, you basically need three member districts in order to ensure some proportionality, Though you can do it. I mean, you could have main two districts. I, I, you know, I, I'm also supportive of increasing the size of the U.S. House. I've written a, a bit on that topic as well. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to see like a 50% increase in the size of the House, which would then boost Maine up to, to, th to, to three representatives, and that would yeah, then then off Maine, for example, could be one three-member district allocated proportionally. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that by again by by global standards, the the U.S. House is much smaller than it should be at a constituent ratio of three hundred and fifty thousand constituents to one member. The U.S. has uh, the largest constituent. Uh, representative ratio by uh, by a factor of three, except for India, which is much more of a federal system. Um, you know, and, and there's precedent for both of these things, right? The, the U.S. the original U.S. House was only 65 members up through 1911. At almost every census, the uh, Congress uh, increased the size of the House to match the growing population. Uh, similarly, there was a, a, a for the first 50 years of our democracy, many states uh, used multi-member districts, and it wasn't until the 1842 Apportionment Act uh, that uh, Congress uh, pushed towards single-member districts. And you know, if, we, if we had another hour, I'd tell you all about the 1842 Apportionment <laughs> Act. Uh, Maybe we'll do this show part two. Uh, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum this afternoon on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests are Lee Drutman, Senior Fellow at New America, and Sandy Mizell, the Goldfarb Family Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Government at Colby College. Um, this show is pre-recorded. No listener calls are being taken. So, Sandy, what do you think are the chances of our getting a reform like that? None. <laughs> It's <laughs> a quick answer. I, I just don't, I don't see it. And, and I think, you know, Lee very quickly uh, deals away with the small states. There are a lot of small states. Um, there are states with one representative, there are states with two, there are states with three. Three doesn't do very much good unless you, unless you do go also to preferential voting or ranked choice voting, um, which case we would have, would have some impact. And, and we still would have the single presidency and you'd have to somehow deal with that. Um, and I don't think I don't think any of those reforms have any chance. On the other hand, I think where Lee and I probably do agree is at least from what I what I just heard him saying is, I think ranked choice voting can make a huge difference in within the parties that exist today. Um, I think we've seen it actually in the way it's functioned in Maine. I think we'd see it other places as well. And partly that function that that effect would be um, to uh, allow the people who are um, but it, it would have, we never would have had Donald Trump in 2016 if he'd had ranked choice voting. In 2016, the organization Republicans could not get their act together and Trump beat them off because they fought off each other under ranked choice voting, they would have combined their votes to do it. I think you'd never get a, um, a huge move to the left in the Democratic Party or to the right in the Republican Party if you had primaries with ranked choice voting. And that's basically what we showed in Maine in the primaries that we've had for, uh, for governor and uh, in the Republican Party for, for legislature as well. 
Um, so I, I think that's a reform that can move this. I just don't see, you know, the, don't get me wrong. I think if we could have a proportional representation system, I think the first thing you have to do is get rid of the states. And I don't think most people are ready to get rid of the states. The worst legislature, the most malapportioned legislature, the most uh, uh, undemocratic legislature in the world is the United States Senate. Um, you know, Wyoming has as many senators as California. Alaska has as many senators as Texas. Um, that's absolutely ridiculous. And that's the kind of uh, uh, institution that really is, is most uh, dramatically affecting this polarization that we are talking about, that Lee was talking about earlier in the beginning. And Lee, unless you can change that, I don't think you can you can make, do the other kinds of reforms that we're talking about. I'm going to give Lee a chance to shed a ray of hope on this, if you will. All right. Here comes your ray of hope. So uh, I mean, when, when I look at the history of uh, American politics, uh, I see these occasional bursts in which we fundamentally change our institutions of democracy. Now I see the American Revolution. Who, who would have who would have thunk it? The betting wisdom would have been that the, the revolution would have been quickly crushed by the British. Um, but you know, here 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 we are uh, with a, an improbable change of of self governance. Uh, you know, 1830s Jacksonian democracy was a was a big change, particularly. Uh, progressive era. I mean, we, we did away with direct election of senators. We put in place uh, a direct primary. I think that was a mistake, but that was a major change. Direct, uh, the initiative and referenda, women's suffrage was a major change. Uh, you know, civil rights era. You know, a lot of stuff that people would have said that this is never going to happen. This can't possibly happen. People in power are not going to accept these changes. So we, we've done some pretty radical things. We, we've done them on a roughly 60 year time scale. And uh, it's election changes is hard, but you know, we're in a moment in which I think uh, a wide majority of Americans, including many people in power, uh, recognize that the system can't go on as it is. Uh, and, you know, I think even, I mean, there certainly I talked to a lot of moderate Republicans and folks in the never Trump world. And, you know, I think a, a few years ago, they would have said, maybe we can get the Republican Party back. But I, I think looking at the events of this year, they've, uh, you know, they, they've been radicalized. Everybody in in the, the broader world of politics that I talk to, it uh, feels like they've been radicalized by the events of the few, year, uh, few years. Uh, and so I think there's a much wider opening. And yeah, it's rare for a, a two-party system, first best post system to change, but it does happen. I mean, you, you look at the history of advanced democracies and their uh, countries do sometimes change their electoral systems. And you know, New, New Zealand is a, is a recent example of a country that had first best post elections now has proportional elections after you know, two referenda in 92 and 93. Uh, most people thought that wouldn't have, have happened. You know, I, I think the, the, the objection would be that, well, the parties would never stand for that. But who are the parties, right? I mean, we've just talked about how, how leaderless the parties are. Uh, and if you have factions within the party who all recognize that they are stuck in this system and that the system itself is leading to the destruction of our democracy, you know, I, I think big changes is possible. But you know, what's, what's possible and what's feasible is not a cold, hard fact. It's 
our collective judgment of what's possible and what's feasible. And if we all think something ought to be different and some other alternative would be better, uh, we we have to fight for that and we have to believe it's possible because to say nothing could ever change and we're just stuck is to 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 give up well and it I took women to 70 that. years to get the right to vote if we start now you know we might get there eventually right, well yeah <laughs> sandy um we're running out of time but i want to start with you and give you a couple minutes to wrap up um from your perspective our conversation today and share your parting thoughts Sure. First of all, thank you, Anne. Thank the League for this. And, and Lee, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I think that, that this is a very important topic. And, and while Lee and I disagree about the likelihood of the changes that he is talking about, I think we do agree that there are some changes necessary. For, I think, 28 years, every four years, with various co-authors, I edited a series of books called The Parties Respond. Um, and in fact, the parties have responded. That started, that started in 1974, I think, that series of books. And the parties have responded to various challenges. Um, to me, the, the hope is with a group like Fair Vote and Rob Ritchie and pushing for uh, ranked choice voting, pu pushing for other kinds of electoral reforms, um, accepting the fact that we aren't going to uh, get rid of the states, we aren't going to get rid of uh, geographic representation, which in fact, if you poll, people feel very strongly about, um, even though they disagree with everything else, they feel very strongly about being represented by somebody who represents their area. So that I think um, to get out of these, you do need what I said in my, I think my first comment, need enlightened leadership. I think there is some hope that President Biden stands for that leadership and that his victory basically says that people want that kind of leadership. Uh, and you want reforms that, in fact, are going to lead us in the direction that makes it easier for those people to succeed. Um, am I saying that's going to happen in the next two years? No. Four years? No. Um, I'm now 75. In my lifetime, I hope so. Um, but, you know, I, I just don't think um, fighting for something that is very unlikely to happen is the way to improve the system that we uh, are in today. Well, thanks for that, Sandy. Now, Lee, it's your turn. Final comments. You've got a couple of minutes left. Um, wrap it up for us. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm certainly enthusiastic about ranked choice voting, and I've been a, uh, an outspoken supporter of it. Uh, uh, but, you know, man, I, I, I do uh, worry that the even even though ranked choice voting has some some positive effects, the single winner form of, of ranked choice voting is just uh, not not strong enough, especially to allow for more parties, which I think we absolutely need. And you know, multi-member districts with ranked choice voting preserves geographical representation. It's just the districts are larger. In fact, we have multi-member districts. That are, you know, it, and and they're that's what the Senate is. Uh, you know, all senators are elected through multi-member districts, two-member districts. Uh, so I, we, we don't need to get rid of the states. We don't need to get rid of geographical representation to have proportional representation. We could have it through existing states. I mean, I, I do wonder whether it, it makes sense to have the states as, as currently uh, structured people's identities are much more tied to, to uh, national politics now than to state politics far more so than ever. I mean, we, we might think about, you know, regional consortia of, of states as, as kind of intermediate levels. Uh, 
Right. I don't know. I mean, this is a moment for, I think, uh, thinking big. Uh, I think there are, are these moments in which it feels like things are stuck. Uh, but what is actually happening is that the system is not is unresponsive to mounting pressure. And I, I've been kind of uh, reading a lot about complex systems lately, thinking about evolution and ecology. And one of the things that, that I've gleaned from reading and conversations with various uh, scientists working in this uh, field is that uh, systems go through phase shifts. And uh, some of the indicators of phase shifts um, are a, a, a kind of long period of stasis uh, and what, what we are at a moment in which the, that stasis is, is building up pressure. And I think we will see an opportunity for really big transformation. Thank you both so much. We are now out of time. Um, thank you one more time to our guest this afternoon. Lee Drutman is a senior fellow at New America. He's the author of Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, the, cape for the Case for Multi-Party <laughs> Democracy in America. He's the winner of the 2016 American Political Science Association's Robert A. Dahl Award given for scholarship of the highest quality on the subject of democracy. He's also co-host of the podcast Politics in Question. He writes for the New York Times, for Vox, and for 538, among other outlets. Also with us this afternoon was Sandy Mizell. Sandy is uh, the Goldfarb Family Distinguished Professor Emeritus of American Government at Colby College. He was director of the Colby and Washington program from 1987 to 1995. He was director of the Goldfarb Center for Public Affairs and Civic Engagement from 2003 to 2012. He's the author of numerous books, including Parties and Elections in America, The Electoral Process, which with Mark Brewer is now in its ninth edition. Uh, it was a great discussion. Thank you again both for joining us so much. Thank you for we, having us. We've, you've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM, streaming at WERU.org. Our website at the League for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series is lwvme.org. You can go there to subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for listening this afternoon. We'll see you next month.